leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. In the United States, more than 100,000 people are on a transplant waiting list, and many others simply don't qualify. In 2009, 25 people per day died while on the waiting list. Transplant procedures are costly and require lifelong use of immunotherapies. BioLife 4D is seeking to disrupt organ transplantation with the development of bioprinted hearts produced using a patient's own cells. The technology also has the potential to have an impact in other areas, such as drug discovery and development. We spoke to Steve Morris, founder and CEO of BioLife 4D, about about its efforts to bioprint a transplantable human heart, a recent milestone it achieved to produce a mini heart, and the range of challenges it must overcome to make its vision a commercial success. Steve, thanks for joining us. It's uh, my pleasure. I'm excited to talk about our pretty incredible technology. Well, we're going to talk about BioLife 4D, tissue engineering, and the company's efforts to 3D bioprint human hearts suitable for transplantation. Let's start with the company itself. How did it come about, and what exactly is it seeking to do? That's a great question. It really came about by accident. Uh, I was originally putting together a 3D rapid prototyping company, and, uh, and, and pretty much by accident, I kept learning more and more about 3D bioprinting for the uh, medical industry, and uh, as I learned more and more about that, I put that together with the fact that one out of every three people globally in every developed country in the world die of cardiovascular disease. Uh, that, that's a lot of people, and just in the United States, there's about 200,000 people that need a life-saving heart transplant. Um, without it, they'll die, and only about 3,500 people are even allowed on the heart transplant waiting list because so few heart transplants uh, with donor organs could be done uh, that they only allow about 3,500 of the, of the people to even be on the waiting list. They have to ration all of those hearts. So because it's such an incredibly huge problem um, and because we're finally at a point in with science and computing technology and, and bioengineering, biomaterials, all the different things that go into this, we're, we're finally at a point in human history where we can take this technology and, and push it over the line and, and, and really save a lot of people's lives. 
I think of some of the efforts we've seen with bioprinting, people trying to produce skin or bone or, or bladders. Is the heart exponentially more complicated to do? Uh, that's a great question. So the answer is, is in some levels, yes, in some levels, no. First of all, um, from the sheer volume of it, the size of it, it's uh, you need a lot more cells um, in order to bioengineer a heart than a pancreas or a liver or something like that. So it's significantly more um, uh, difficult in that respect. Um, also, if you compare it to flat tissue like skin, because it has that three-dimensional aspect to it, it, it it's much more difficult. Um, but it's, it, there's trade-offs. At the end of the day, the heart essentially is just a pump. And well, that's kind of a bit of a oversimplification. Uh, the minimum uh, uh, subset of, of, of performance that we're looking to achieve is this pumping action so that we can keep, keep people alive. Um, kidneys, livers, the pancreas, for instance, uh, uh, secrete many, many different hormones. So there's challenges to all, to all these different things. Uh, uh, heart, in some cases, are a little bit easier. Some cases are, 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 are quite a bit more difficult. An another thing that, another reason why we chose the heart, though, is because unlike a pancreas or a liver or a kidney or something, until you have the whole organ bioengineered, you really don't have anything. With the heart, it's different. So, so for a person to receive a heart transplant clearly is late stage heart failure, but many people have heart attacks and, and, and we have cardiac patches, which is part of what, the, what we use in order to make up a full heart that could be used for therapy for people with, uh, with heart attacks. Uh, we, we're also working on valves and grafts, the different components of the heart. Each of those are huge markets that currently exist. Um, and, and we could have a tremendous impact on those on the way to our full heart. So we have many different what we call shots on goal, many opportunities in order to translate this technology and get it to the market and really be helping people. Beyond the, the supply limitations for heart transplantations that you'll be addressing, what are some other advantages that using a lab-grown heart might present over using transplantation? So there, there, there's essentially three main challenges with, with uh, a donor organ. The first one is the huge lack of supply. So clearly by bioengineering a, a, a replacement organ or a, an organ that's viable for transplantation, particularly our process, which utilizes a patient's own cells, um, eliminates that supply issue. Uh, the second cha main challenge of a donor organ is, is the rejection factor. Most, um, you know, uh, a, a donor organ is a foreign body that's being implanted into your body, so your body wants to reject it. And, and that's a huge challenge that donor organs uh, transplants face. And in order to prevent the rejection, uh, the, don the recipient, the patient, has to go on a massive amount of immunosuppressant therapy. And essentially, they shut down their immune system so their body won't reject the donor organ. The problem with that is that, um, is that you become susceptible to all different types of diseases. You can die of a cold, theoretically, because um, you're shutting your, your system down. Also, as a result, uh, you, you, you are 
are are really trading just one disease for another. Um, on average, a person who receives a donor heart only lives about 10 years, and, and a lot of that is because of the, de the degradation of the heart because of the immunosuppressant therapy and other types of uh, diseases such as cancers that you and I would typically not be uh, susceptible to, but with a, uh, with a shutdown immune system, uh, donor or donor recipients are susceptible to. So, so really a bioengineered organ, particularly like we do it out of vocation zone cells, addresses all three of those huge challenges that currently face the, the donor transplant process. You mentioned you had many shots on goal. One of the potential applications for what you're doing is for use in drug development. I'm wondering if you can explain that a little and if the threshold you're going to have to reach is, is lower for that. Absolutely. That's a great question. So the, the next major milestone um, that we're set on is we call our mini heart. Uh, back in April, in the April-May time period, um, we were able to do our prototype mini heart uh, which essentially is a shrunk-down version of a human heart, but it's the size of essentially a cherry or a little bit bigger. It doesn't have all the function of a full heart. We could take it and plant it into somebody or an animal and have it survive that animal for the rest of its life, but it's not really designed for that. What the purpose of it is is to provide, as you said, to pharmaceutical companies and drug discovery companies in order to tax to test cardiotoxicity of drugs that they're thinking about putting to the market. So right now, um, the, the process that a, a pharmaceutical company or a drug discovery company has to follow before they can get drugs to the market is they have to do testing on animals and then they have to do human trials uh, to make sure that it's safe, this new drug is safe and, safe and effective. The problem is, is that uh, that most of these compounds fail mostly because of, of negative effects it has to uh, people's hearts. And an inexpensive human trial could be about $50 million. Expensive ones can easily be over $500 million. So it's a lot of money that drug discovery companies and pharmaceutical companies are risking. Prior to doing these human trials, they use they currently use an animal model which is the best predictive model that exists prior to going to humans to determine whether a compound or a new drug uh, will have negative effects to the heart. The problem is, is, is that um, these animals are a different species than us. So though, while they do give some predictive value, it's not a terribly accurate predictive value. And, and our mini heart is designed to step in there and give a very highly predictive model uh, that everybody can use prior to going to the human trials after all, what's better predicting what a human heart will do than, a, than another human heart, even if it is a shrunk-down version? Let's talk about the process of producing a heart for transplantation. BioLife4D is, is not yet able to do this, but what's the process of bioprinting a heart? Walk me through each of the steps, which begins with using an MRI to create an image of a patient's heart. Yeah, so, the, so there's all these different steps. Uh, I'll, let me briefly go through them in order to bioengineer this organ. So the first thing we do is we take a patient's uh, blood um, and take an MRI uh, image of their heart. And the next thing we do is we take that blood and we separate out the white blood cells. And then what we do is we take those white blood cells and we literally reprogram them 
back to become stem cells again. So they're induced adult stem cells. They're called IPS cells. And once we do that, remember, these are the patient's own cells. Um, these cells start dividing and making more and more and more cells. And then when we have enough cells in volume in order to print all the heart, what we do is we separate these uh, induced adult stem cells into different batches, and then we reprogram each of those batches into the different cells that make up the heart. So there's the cardiomyocytes, which B, there's endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells. There's about six main cells that, that make up the human heart. So we'll separate some of these cells and we'll reprogram them again from their induced adult state into specialized heart cells, each of these six different types of heart cells. Then what we do is we take those cells and we put them in a specially developed bio -ink. Think of it almost as a little droplets of, uh, of hydrogel that has these cells floating around in them as well as growth factors and nutrients and other things that we put in there to make the cells viable and, and, and help this process work. And then what we do is we use a, literally a 3D bioprinter and lay down each layer of the heart one layer at a time. So unlike traditional 3D printing where you essentially melt the layers together, we can't do that with bioprinting because we'll kill all the cells. So we literally we place all the cells where they belong, and then we also lay down um, scaffolding, just like as if you were to be building a building. The scaffolding holds everything in place until the natural self-assembly process takes place. So once we get all these cells into the right place, and they've been reprogrammed to become, for instance, cardiomyocytes, the DNA in those cells know what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to network together and join with the other cells and, and then start beating. It's the natural biologic process that takes place in, in our bodies um, that's formed every organ in our bodies naturally. We're just recreating the, the circumstances. We're tricking the cells to, to go through that process, but in vitro, outside of the body. So that's really what our process looks like. Once we lay those cells down and once they self-assemble, we melt away the, the scaffolding, we put the organ in a, in a, in a, in a bioreactor, and then ultimately that will be able to be used for uh, transplantation back into that patient. Because, because we took an MRI of the patient, um, we make that heart the same exact size and shape as the, as the patient. So it's not only a perfect genetic match, it's also a perfect physical match. Um, so the, one of the huge parts, uh, one of the large reasons that uh, the mini heart is so significant is because we've been able to go through and do all these different steps of the process. The organ that we have now, the mini heart, is, is not to a point where it's fully functional like a, like a human heart, a native human heart is. Uh, but we don't need to get to that level in order to do cardiotoxicity testing. So, so, for instance, the length of testing when you're doing cardiotoxicity testing may be a matter of hours. So, so the, 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 the mini heart has to last for that period of time at, instead of indefinitely for an animal, the rest of an animal's life. So the bar for the mini heart is lower than, uh, than actual, uh, uh, advances that we need to do in order to have a, a heart viable for transplant in order to keep an animal or a human alive for the rest of their life. And how long will the entire process take? 
So as of right now, the process is about a six-week process. Most of the most of that time actually is uh, spent in doing all of the reprogramming of the cell. Um, and we do that in, in, in one way now. As we move forward, we'll continue to look for more efficient ways to do that. Uh, but because of the volume of a heart and because of the, the 3D construct, we need to generate a large volume of cells. And, and that particular process, once we change the cells from the, the white blood cells into those induced adult stem cells, um, that process takes some time in order to generate the volume of cells that we need. Um, after that period of time, literally the bioprinting is just a matter of a few hours, so that, that's not that long, and then it only takes about three days or so for, the, for all of the cells to aggregate, self-aggregate, self-assemble, um, connect to each other, and, and start functioning. So really the long part of that process is in the cellular work prior to getting it going. And what are the challenges remain? What what are the gaps that exist between being able to print a mini heart and being able to print a transplantable human heart? Uh, well, there there there's a couple. Um, the first one is is truly in in the scaling. So right now, in working with um, you know flat planar tissues which most other people are doing, you're, you could be working with thousands or tens of thousands of cells. In our, in, our, in our mini heart, we're talking about we're working in millions of cells. And for a full-size human heart, you're talking about billions of cells. So, so, so we have to be able to scale up. Um, in, that, in doing that, there, there's certain challenges. The first one is, is clearly just working with that number of cells, making sure that uh, that all of the cells are viable, that they're all the, the correct types of cells. Um, so just working in that volume of cells is, is going to be a huge challenge uh, as we scale up. And probably if there was one other challenge, it would probably be related to vascularization. So once we once you bioengineer an organ or bioprint an organ, um, the cells will die unless they get nutrients and oxygen. Uh, just like they do in, like it would in your body. And, and so vascularization so that you can perfuse blood or other type of liquid to, to keep the organ viable is, is really essential. Um, and while we are working with vascularization right now, um, we're, we're probably going to need to increase the, the complexity of that as we get into larger and larger, as we scale up for larger and larger organs. What is the regulatory hurdles you'll need to go through to to take this from a a lab to the marketplace? Uh, so that that's a that's another great question. Uh, there and, and it it it's different. And the reason I say that is is because uh, we have different products that are going to reach reach the market, and it depends on it depends on what those products are. So, for instance, valves. Um, Valves, uh, if we, when we go to the FDA, there's a, there's a viable option for valves right now. There's, there's pig valves, there's cow valves, and there's mechanical valves. Um, all, none of those are really great options. Those are really the only three options. Neither, neither of them are great. They all have significant disadvantages, but those options do exist. So as we move to bring our valves out to the market, even though they will be significantly more beneficial to any of the current options, there's still our current options, so it'll probably be a longer path that the, that the FDA is going to require us to take. 
ironically for the for the full heart for instance uh the full heart is 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 going to be able to satisfy or look to satisfy a market that there is no alternative as i mentioned before there's about 200,000 people that otherwise they're going to die if they don't get a heart transplant. And because there's so few heart transplants that take place, there's only that three and a half thousand, about three and a half thousand is the most we've ever been able to do in the United States in any year, which is why there's about three and a half thousand people they, they leave on the list. Well, by definition, that means that there's about 196 or 97,000 people who need a heart transplant. They're not even allowed to get on the list, so they have no hope. And, and we can reach out directly to them through a program called the Compassionate Exemption, where President Trump just did a little bit more uh, aggressive type of compassionate exemption called Right to Try, in which we will be able to get to the market to start working with people um, even significantly earlier than we otherwise would be able to do because these are we're trying to save people's lives who, who have chronic illness, and will otherwise just die. So, so depending on which of the different components or what products that we're coming out with, they have different regulatory pathways. There's a dizzying array of advancements that's driving what you're doing, but reviewing the materials of the company, it's unclear to me whether there's anything here that's unique to BioLife 4D. Is there any technology or any IP that the company's developed, or is it just building on the scientific discoveries and available technologies to achieve the production of bioprinted hearts. Yeah, so so our our process, all of the different ways that we do each of the individual steps to our process are unique to us. And we have filed IP, we continue to file um, IP to protect it. Um, so for instance, um, bio ink. There's different bio inks that are out there. Um, ours is very unique to us. We spend a lot of time to come up with um, all of our different components that go into it, our secret sauce, if you will. Um, and that's something that's proprietary um, exclusively to us. We, we do build on, on, on a lot of different disciplines. Really, that's what BioLife 4D is. So, so a lot of companies have someone who's really good in one aspect or one step of this process and form a company around them. What we did is we went out and found preeminent people in each of, that lead in each of these areas of expertise in biomaterials and bioprinting in the life sciences, all the different things that are involved. Um, and these people have spent their entire careers in their particular silo of expertise, whatever that may be. And what we've done is we've come in at the very end. So you think of it like they've all, everyone has helped push the ball to the red zone. And what we're doing now is we're coming together, we're putting everyone together as one team in order to get it into the end zone. So, so that's something that I think is, is, is pretty unique to BioLife 4D. Is there any sense of price points at which you'll be, need to be able to do this to be a viable business? Yeah, so for instance, we can talk about the hearts. Currently, um, for a heart transplant patient, if you're one of those people lucky enough to get on the list, if you're one of the three and a half thousand, um, it costs about approximately about a half a million dollars um, for the initial transplant with all of the different costs that go into it, the heart, the donor heart, um, the acquisition of the donor heart, 
um, the, all the, the surgery, all the, the hospitalization, all of that, that all adds up to about a half a million dollars. Um, a good portion of that is about a month that the patient has to spend in the hospital afterwards dealing with the, with the, uh, re, you know, trying not to reject the organ. Um, after that, um, each of these patients, it, 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 it costs about a million dollars over the balance of their lifetime. Uh, for the immunosuppressant therapy, for all the different hospital visits and things like that that are associated with people that have had donor heart transplants. So you're looking at about currently about a million and a half dollars for a patient. With us, um, probably about uh, 30 to 40% of that upfront cost uh, could be eliminated because they're not going to have those huge challenges that they have to deal with for, for rejection. Um, and then almost all of the million dollars that comes afterwards will be eliminated because you have no immunosuppressant therapies that you're doing and you're not more susceptible to getting sick or anything like that. So this is one of those unique circumstances where it's just a huge win-win for everybody. It's, it's a win for the patients because instead of trading one disease for another, um, they truly have the opportunity to have a cure and have a good quality of life going forward. Um, it's great for the it's great for the insurance companies because um, it's a significant cost reduction for them for each of the patients that that do have heart transplants. Um, it's also a huge win for the hospitals and the dot and the surgeons uh, because people are people are more uh, have a higher likelihood to survive. So those are all ways that they get graded and reimbursed and things like that. So it's one of those scenarios where it's just a win 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 for everybody involved. And in terms of the business model, is is the hospital the customer? Would you sell hearts to them? Would you partner with hospitals that do transplantations? And you say barrier. You don't expect payers to be barriers, but will they want to see some proof of durability that that a bioprinted heart can function as it should over? A long period of time before they're willing to to pay for such hearts. Yeah, so so those are those are excellent questions. Um, those those are all things that 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 have have yet to have to play out. So there, you you there's a couple of different considerations in in that particular question. Um, of course, over the long term, if it's not something that is that is working. Um, uh, then it's not something that a the FDA would allow to move forward. It's also something that if it's not working, that it's it's not something insurance companies would would agree to to pay for. So that that's kind of inherent within the whole. That's kind of inherent within the the, the whole scenario. It, it 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 needs to it needs to work in order to in order to make it to the market. I know you're in the process of raising money. You've chosen to do this through crowdfunding. I'm curious if why you decided to use uh, crowdfunding as opposed to a more traditional venture financing route, and whether you know this has been too out there an idea for traditional venture investors, or is it something that they see as too far away, or do you find a, a preference in turning to crowdfunding for other reasons? Yeah, so it's another great question. You know, when I started the company, um, and I have experienced my last company I sold to a uh, private equity company, so I've experienced with with all different types of 
of financing scenarios. And when I started this company, it seemed uh, uh, pretty difficult in my mind to go the, a traditional financing route, particularly at the beginning of the company, where, where every, we kept saying, well, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we plan to do, and, and there's a lot of going to do and plan to do, uh, but we haven't done anything yet. So we, I thought it would be pretty, pretty difficult in order to go traditional routes of financing. Um, and, and I would prefer probably not to be dealing with, you know, with venture, uh, with venture groups because they have a particular, uh, propensity to, to, to get pretty involved in, in, in the way that things move forward. Uh, so, so I learned about equity crowdfunding and I thought it was just a perfect vehicle for us. It's something that, that we attract investors, uh, both from a financial end, you know, people say that they're excited to be, involved with a brand new technology. It's like investing in Apple before the iPhone came out or something like that. So there's a lot of people that we have that, that have invested on the financial uh, possibilities of the company, but there's also a lot of people that have invested just because they want to be part of the team that pushes this technology forward. They want to be part, they want to participate in their own way in, in being able to in a, to do something that could have such a huge profound impact on humanity. So we have a, we have a lot of different people that have come together. Um, we've had, you know, we have a lot of people that have invested only, you know, a thousand dollars or something in that range. And, you know, we have people that have invested significantly more. So it's been something that's worked out really well for us. Um, the equity structure works out really well for us. We've been able to raise a lot of money. Um, we're continually in a process where we're looking to raise additional funds because the more we can raise, uh, the more the more we can scale up. And the more we can scale up, the shorter period of time it is for us to reach each of those milestones. And is there a time frame yet or a, a goal date when you're hoping to be able to produce a, a fully functioning human heart? Yeah, so, you know, and again, that depends on, that depends, uh, roughly on, on, on how we continue to raise money. So the nice thing about the valve, the graph, everything that leads up to mini heartbeat and everything that leads ultimately up to the human heart, it's all on the same path. So we don't, we don't have to get off one path or get distracted by doing one thing in order to be working, you know, towards our ultimate goal of the, of the human heart. Um, so, 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 so the more we can, the more we can scale up, the quicker we can raise money, the more people that we can, you know, that we can put on it. So while we don't know the exact amount of time it's going to take to get to the human heart, we know the more we scale up, the more we're going to bring that time in. It's hard to really tell um, with this type of thing, you know, put, put time frames on things. We, we thought it would take us about two years before we went from the very beginning, before we were literally printing viable human heart tissue and it took us less than six months and we thought it would take probably at least another year maybe more in order to get our prototype of our mini heart from that point and it took us about another six months so so we're not we're not really sure exactly how long you know it'll take we're hopeful that if we continue at this pace you know we're talking you know could be three years it could be it could be you know something in that range maybe a little bit longer um, it could also be it could also be significantly longer. You know, we're 
We're, we're not so worried about the things, the challenges that we know about. We're really a bit more concerned about the things that we don't know about. You know, Mother Nature has taken, you know, millions of years of, of evolution in order to perfect this process that we're trying to simulate outside the body. So, so my guess is that Mother Nature is going to throw some wrinkles in there that are going to, that are going to, you know, take some effort to, to get by. Uh, so it's really it's really impossible to tell, but we're hopeful three years, five years, somewhere in there. Steve Morris, founder and CEO of BioLife 4D. Steve, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.